ArchD Radio. On air and online. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. ArchD Radio, Life FM. ArchD 107.9, Life FM. James here with you. Hope you're having a wonderful evening tonight. Now, uh, tonight's a very, very special night. I've got two wonderful guests here uh, in the studio. They haven't actually been on ArchD before. We have uh, Umes. How are you going? Uh, I'm doing good. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, Umes. Okay. That's good. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. And Sister Meredith as well. Uh, how are you going? I'm doing really well. It's great to have you here. Now, the reason um, I've invited you both in here today was because um, I was at a a presentation that you guys did recently talking about a lot of the work that you guys are actually doing, not just in our own community, but just globally as well. Can you give us a bit of a rundown on the kind of work that you're most dedicated to at the moment, Sister Meredith? Well, I suppose my passion, my two passions are really uh, anti-slavery movement. That's why I joined um, ACRATH, which stands for the Australian Catholic religious against the trafficking of humans uh, and that's a worldwide phenomenon that uh, has uh, impact on uh, millions of people around the world and the other passion for me is supporting asylum seekers in their resettlement in the Australian uh, community particularly in Adelaide. So you work quite closely with ACRATH and the other group, there's now a new South Australian group that actually hasn't been around for a very long Mm. time, Justice for Refugees Mm. South Australia. Mm. Uh, Can you give us a bit of an idea specifically about what they do that particular organization the second one so the last few years has been a group of people under the umbrella of circle of friends that has been supporting people as they've moved out of the detention center in adelaide which was in the Inverbrackie. And we thought that we could keep supporting people for a long period of time, but we weren't really making any impact on the policies that uh, really were very difficult for asylum seekers. So we started, well, we restarted Justice for Refugees there. There was a group some years ago, and then things improved for asylum seekers, and it went into abeyance. And now we started again in September last year, and our focus has been to advocate for the ch- a change in the policies that affect asylum seekers and refugees, but particularly asylum seekers. That is people who um, are still in the process of having their claims being heard uh, for uh, refugee status. And that's a very big distinction, isn't it? It's a very big distinction, and there are 30,000 approximately, 30,000 people around Australia in this situation where their claims have for asylum have not yet been uh, processed and so they are uh, in in the process now of having this happen but it's taking a long time and um, most of these people all, all of these people will receive temporary protection visas uh, as opposed to permanent visas for you i know that you've been working in this area mm. for a while was there a specific event or series of events mm. or something that you witnessed or something that happened to you personally? Was there a moment that said, I really need to do more work in this area? This is something that I need to dedicate myself to. Um well, I suppose because I spent four years at the Inverbrackie Detention Centre, my role there was principally to accompany people, to listen to them, to encourage them, to support them as they found themselves in a new country. Um, so that really influenced the next step for me, which was to say, okay, we can do all of that. The present policies are such that people uh, will never receive a permanent visa. 
they will always be on a temporary protection visa. So that's really disturbing for me because I can see the effects of that in people's lives. The struggle to try and find your place in Australian society, find a work, find a house, find schools for your children, but you will never, never be able to receive a permanent visa. This began uh, from... I think it's the 19th July 2013. This is when the changes happened. Right. So in Australia now, we have people on permanent visas that came before that date. We have people that have come from refugee camps in other parts of the world that have come out on humanitarian visas. Mm. And we have this group that's quite substantial. People often don't know about it, that um, are consigned to constantly being on a temporary protection visa arrangement, let alone the people that are on Nauru and Manus Island who will never actually get to Australia. So that's our Well, as it stands concern. at the moment. Yes, as it stands that's, at the our, moment. that's our concern. Mm. And so that's why we um, set up Justice for Refugees to say to people, uh, to be an education group, an advocacy group, and to um, ask people to really consider when they go to vote on the 2nd of July and they are wanting to make a difference to the lives of asylum seekers, look at the policies of the different parties and work out for yourself where you stand in relation to voting. Now, I saw something, I don't know if it was on the Justice for Refugees website, Mm. It might have been on the Australian Refugee Council website. They're not attempting to be political in terms of aligning people with particular parties. It's all about saying, look, before you do vote, yeah. this is what they're all yeah. saying. Yeah. And be yeah. aware of that because it's yeah. you've got you to gotta be informed about this stuff. It's uh, what we call a checklist. So a, a lot of um, advocacy groups are doing that, but the Australian Refugee Council certainly has put one out. Now we've put one out. We had uh, printed 10,000 and leaflets right. and uh, we've got uh, distributed almost 9,000 of wow. them already. that's fantastic. That's um, brilliant. Umes, great to have you here. Now, Umes, you're from a, a very, very different background. You're here at, in Australia as a, as, a, as a student who's come from overseas. Can you yeah. give us a bit, of a, a bit of an idea about your background, about where you're from and how your path crossed with, with Meredith? Yes, James. Uh, uh I, I actually was involved uh, in social issues back in my country, uh, mainly with uh, child trafficking issues. Uh, <clears throat> so I was working in, in those sectors for around like two and a half years of time from my undergrad level. So I came across the children and uh, families were affected by this big business model of trafficking. So I was working over there in numerous charities. Uh, we call it like non-government organization. Mm-hmm. So in my two and a half years of time, I was in, uh, luckily involved in three different charities so i got a different ranges or field of uh, you know like trafficking that that happens in my own country so in my later years i was mostly involved in uh, trafficking of children in orphanages uh, in the orphanages or children homes back in the country where numerous children from poor poorly stricken remote areas of nepal are brought down to you know like uh, urban areas of nepal and institutionalized over there so i was involved more in those issues uh, so then luckily i was uh, i was here in australia to, to pursue my masters in project management and my passion was always to fight for those issues and came across an organization in south australia called akrat uh, 
and then I came across the team of Akrat where I met Sister Meredith mm. and here I found like opportunities because I've, I've been involved in this trafficking in orphanage issue I saw a point where the West and the East meets, uh, meets for this issue because Western communities are uh, very big stakeholders in mm. this uh, in this issue how so, so how do you mean how are they big stakeholders in it? For, for example uh, whenever uh, orphanage or a children home is set up the, the remote areas of Nepal become a supply place, you know, like the children are supplied uh, to these orphanages, but uh, these orphanages need money to run, you know, like, and the money comes from the Western communities mainly. Oh, I see. Yeah. So people wanting to do, uh, thinking they're doing the right thing, yeah. donating towards these orphanages, think they're really helping, but in actual fact, there's actually kind of a dark underbelly to what some of the stuff that some of them are doing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. For example, whenever an orphanage is set up, not only through donation, but people go over there as volunteers so there is another angle where money could be raised you know like yeah. they charge money to the western volunteers visiting this organization and volunteering for a week or a month over there so it has become uh, a, a very good and successful business model where knowing knowingly and unknowingly the western communities and volunteers are you know like supplying that liquidity needed to, for this business model or business to grow up so that's where wow. the western communities uh, become a very great stakeholders the last thing that i want anyone to think and i'm sure that you guys would want anything to think is to go well then don't support orphanages overseas because there's this horrible trade that's actually going on in some of them how can that discernment occur how can we be more aware of of what we can be doing and, and the, the the right kind of models to be supporting and to be able to see where the wrong things are occurring yeah you brought a very good point like the right model or the right system where the support could be provided is the place where like these children uh, you know like giving a brief background about these children they are uh, brought in an institutionalized system where they are protected orphans but in reality you know like when you go over the facts we found out like 80 percentage of these children have at least one living parent and how can that be yeah how how so how does it work sorry sorry to keep interrupting and i know that for you this is probably like you've been working in this area for a while so you're really aware of it but but for me that just that blows my mind how can that be how do these kids get into this orphanage if their parents at least one of their parents is alive uh, to understand that we need to uh, understand the scenario of the rural areas of nepal you know like james like these are the places where there is no actually monetary transaction over there. People, they are lacking the facilities for education, health and everything. And you know, like every desire of a parent to, is to see their child being educated. And in these remote areas, we don't find good education. And there might be some place where you could provide education, but they, then they are taken back with the fact that they don't have money, money or any, any facilities to provide education to the children. And someone, for example, let's say, let's talk, call a Tom call agent over here. When an agent or someone from the urban areas go to these rural areas and mm. uh, say that your child is going to be educated in some parts of Kathmandu, I think any parent would give up their child to these people in the hope that their child will be educated and return back to the villages. But in the reality, when they come down to these urban areas, in the, in the orphanages in Kathmandu or the children homes in Kathmandu and other touristic places, they, they are f faced with a different reality where education becomes the last priority. The first priority becomes like portraying these children in websites or any other places oh where they man. are portrayed orphans and that's where they attract you know like international donation and all these good people you know like sympathetic people from western communities who want to do something you know like who want to donate something for these kind of children seeing those stories so that's where the point meets up so 
what do you do? What what I mean, can you give us a bit of an idea about what you have done in those areas with the NGOs to try and support this? Yes, sure. Uh, yes, James. Let let me give you like two examples, specific examples who have struck me in my whole life. You know, like yep. uh, one example would be like where. Three children uh, from one of the remotest villages in Nepal were brought down to Kathmandu in a children's home in Kathmandu. And when they were brought, you know, like uh, I was mainly involved in investigations. So we were, uh, you know, like collaborating with the police to gather evidences and doing all the field research work. So these were like three children in uh, in Kathmandu where money was being raised by this children's home in names of them. And a lot of money was poured in for these three children. For example, one child was, you know, like suffering from a very severe disease and that was portrayed as a story and many a uh, lot of money was poured in and we got information from one of the volunteers who was working in the in that organization that uh, all the details all the facts about the children were faked and we carried so out there was no disease uh, there was a disease oh, there was yeah but okay. the f- uh, story of the children that was provided in the website was all fake for example we come across one another child from the same uh, children orphanage who were portrayed like he was studying in class you know like the junior for example class lower kg we call it like lower kg in nepal the in the kindergarten level he was was portrayed as that child but when you come across the reality that child had already grown up and was like you know like 16 17 years of age and the money was being raised in name (laughs) of that child you know like and people were giving money for that for the education of that child who had already grown up now so we came across these three children and we found out like this now let me give you a complex situation where the poverty of these families become you know like very vulnerable and people in these orphanages exploit this condition for example the father of these uh, children was working in the trekking agency which was run by the owner of this organization you know like children home and he was depend his family depended (sighs) on the employment provided by this uh, orphanage owner and the three children were habituated, you know, like placed in the children home run by this this same person. So if uh, when we uh, try to convince the family or the mother of this child, they were reluctant uh, to file a case against us because the whole livelihood is based on based on on working for this person. Yes, absolutely. And so the this is, uh, the the poverty of these children were exploited by that same person. You know, like so he was running a very huge children home. That they were almost like around 160 or 70 children living on that same children home and he was wow. raising a lot of money from that so we we are not against the idea that the money is being poured into you know like these children so certainly these children need help but the fact is that they are taken away from their families in a in a place where their family hardly meet their child you know like in an unknown situation we try to fight against that situation and we do not believe in the idea that a child will be safely grown or or, or, or will be in a good condition separated from the family it's with the family that the child grows the best Meredith what Umis is talking about yeah. is he's talking about things in terms of his own personal experience in Nepal but this is not a, just a Nepalese issue no, this is global isn't it it's global and what we've found is with Umis being part of ACRAS in Adelaide, he has enhanced our abilities and our capacities to see this issue of trafficking as a global issue. Because what we've been doing in South Australia and in Australia is mainly an education program to alert people to the issues of human trafficking. And we've been focused on uh, talking to various groups around 
South Australia um, and particularly around Adelaide about the issues of uh, human trafficking. But I think what UMAS has helped us to understand is that this is a global issue and UMAS is providing us with concrete examples of how that's happened in another part of the world. UMAS and I were having a bit of a chat about this before, Mm. about the idea of what makes such a big positive difference is actually Mm. to have a narrative involved in some way because we talk about these issues so often and as a a habit because most of us don't have genuine experience with this. You guys Mm. both have right Mm. at the coalface experience. We talk about it in the abstract. It's unable to be humanised and and, um, Umes and I were talking about that um, that horrible and it was truly horrible, that horrible image of that young Syrian boy on the beach And how much that changed Mm. at that time, at least, how much Mm. that changed the kind of dialogue that was going on, because all of a sudden people saw their child or Mm. a child they knew in their family. I mean, do you guys find that's a a very difficult hurdle to overcome that so often we talk about this sort of group Mm. of people, Mm. uh, group of families, things like that, that Mm. we can't actually there's no tangible contact with them because they're not really people we okay. know and can relate I, to. I think that's a very uh, important point, James, because um, I always say whenever I have to give a presentation around uh, the work that we do in supporting asylum seekers, that we need to encounter the other person. We need to meet a person who is an asylum seeker. That changes our whole perception of who is this person that's fled their country for fear of persecution. They have the same aspirations, hopes and dreams when you really listen to them that everybody else has in Australia. That makes it human. It stops it being a statistic. Mm. You know that there are 61 million people Uh, the highest number ever around the world who are now seeking asylum. 61 million. million So what's that? That's like three times the population of our country at the moment. Yes. And most of those people are not living in refugee camps. They're living in other parts of other countries because they've fled to other countries to seek asylum. So we've got this huge movement of people um, the same for um, uh, trafficking of human beings. That's a global uh, industry, if you want to call it, isn't it, Umas? Yeah. I think it's the statistics are hard to come by, but it's around 51 million people that are being trafficked around the world. That's why the Pope and other relig- uh, you know, other leaders of other. Uh, religious groups, faith groups, have been speaking out so passionately mm. about this global industry, which I think, Umas, if I'm not, um, I think I'm correct in saying is the third biggest money spinner true. besides uh, drugs and arms. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> the distribution true. of drugs and arms. And the third one is the distribution of human beings around the world. From your point of view, Umas, as someone who's actually worked on the front line of this stuff beforehand, if there was sort of like, say, three things that um, listeners who are listening tonight can do to actually try to help ease in some small way the human trafficking situation around the world, what would that be? What would the top things be, do you think? Yes, James, like uh, human trafficking around the world, I don't think I've got that enough expertise to comment on that, but let me certainly bring down to the point where I was working regarding like child trafficking in the orphanages. I think there is a lot more that people in the Western world can do. For example, the first would be like, they must be informed. Mm -hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. ill-informed 
uh, tourists or ill-informed volunteers going down to these yeah. poverty-stricken yeah. places is one of the huge issue. You know, like people being only sympathetic is not enough because these children are in the institution. They are in a in a in, in like many times they are in trauma and people these good people visiting these places suddenly give hope to these children mm-hmm. and that detachment when the volunteers come back to the country is like for for the traumatizing so yeah. mm-hmm. people in the western world must be informed about the situation of the children they they who are living in this kind of children homes and the situation on the children home itself so the first thing would be like uh, they must be informed ask questions yes absolutely mm-hmm. because the the information the most of the information that we as the non-profit organization received in our in our offices would be from these volunteers you know like volunteers visiting these places so they were the source of information if uh, people are informed and the volunteers are informed they will be asking questions to the children asking questions to the orphanage or the children homeowners so they will feed in with the you know like gap between the organization working against these issues and the children home itself so they must be informed about this issue first of all second would be like they must be skilled enough to visit these places you know like as i already mentioned on skilled volunteers or on skilled people visiting these places would further traumatize the situation or further worsen the situation so they must be have some skill to provide to the children or or to the economy over there you know like in this kind of least developed countries thought would be like Di- you know, like divert their uh, donation and divert their support to the, you know, like villages and the rural areas of Nepal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be okay. the most uh, most important thing because these people certainly need help. Well, go through agencies that have got yes. a, um, a very good reputation. Absolutely, yeah. sister. For example, there are certain yeah. agencies who are working in the grassroots. Yeah. Not only they are uh, working in the urban areas, but they are working in the remotest of the areas. And these are the organizations, they do not have the PR skills. They cannot approach the good people out there, out here in the Western communities. I think it becomes the responsibility of Western communities to identify those kind of social workers or the organizations who are really working in the grassroots. So that 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 must that that must be done because it is from those places they uh, that could have a maximum impact of their small support or goodwill they have for these kind of uh, issues or the people in the remotest areas of Nepal. So that would be the three things. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, does the ACRATH website, Meredith, does that have yeah. these details on it? Uh, ACRATH is a very uh, excellent website they can look up and find out information about everything all right. the latest campaigns because we are linked to stop the traffic internationally fantastic that's great so we'll put the link up to that on our facebook page just look for rhd radio on facebook it'll all be there um now sister meredith in terms of justice for refugees yeah. sa and the work you guys yeah. are doing at the moment especially in the lead up to the election because yeah. we are in election season yeah. right now um what, what sort of work okay, are you guys couple, doing there are a couple of things that you might p- draw people's attention to great justice for refugees SA's got a, um, a website and we're on Facebook and all the information of the next couple of weeks is going to be on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, two things I just wanted to alert people to. One is that there are um, many organisations who are supporting asylum seekers in South Australia are having a gathering next Saturday at 12 o'clock in front of Parliament House where we'll walk down, uh, down King William Street to Rundle Mall. Mm-hmm. What time's that? At uh, 12 o'clock. Okay. okay, so that's a really important gathering. Secondly, uh, Justice for Refugees SA is having a vigil the night before the elections. Okay. So that will be from five o'clock to six o'clock 
also in, on the steps of Parliament House. We would love as many people as possible to come and say by our presence that we have not forgotten uh, people who are asylum seekers in Australia and in the offshore detention centres, even though these people are not part of the uh, political discourse mm. uh, at the present time. Um, so... Uh, can we invite people to come but also to bring a battery-operated candle? Right. Uh, because we want to actually say these people matter to us. Mm. These people matter to this community. Also go onto the website and or Facebook and have a look at our, our um, checklist of what, the, what, uh, what we want to have happen for the election and what the parties are actually saying. All right, so we're going to put links to all of this yeah. stuff on our Facebook. You can access um, the Justice for a Few Facebook, uh, Krath website, mm. all of that kind of stuff. Thank you so much, Umes, Sister Meredith. You guys are really busy doing such incredible work on behalf of these wonderful people. Thank you so much on behalf of everyone. And uh, thank you so much for coming on RHD. Thank, thank you, James. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you.